The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 187. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Very glad to have you back on the program. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. You can find all of those social media buttons at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. Give me an email address, and I'll give you a free e-book, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook, read by yours truly of the same title. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll, but I do have five courses available for purchase, one on the war, one on the Constitution, one on secession, one on the Declaration of Independence, and one on Alexander Hamilton. And they all work beautifully together. If you take all five, you're going to get a view of the Constitution and American history that you won't find in many other places. So go to mclanahanacademy.com. They make great gifts. Christmas is coming up. Think about that. Um, So all of those classes are there for you, and that does help support The Brian McClanahan Show. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. And you can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by getting your Brian McClanahan Show gear by going to redbubble.com. Just putting in my name, and you can find all of my merchandise, shirts, uh, stickers, all kinds of cool stuff that has my new logo on it. So... If you'd like to support The Brian McClanahan Show that way, that would be all right as well. And of course, always please rate this show on iTunes or your favorite uh, podcast apps. The more reviews, the better, and the faster it moves up the list, so more people find the show. So I always appreciate that, and please share it around on social media as well. Okay, I'm going to talk about an issue today that I think is um, interesting in that it's... it works within my concept, or at least the way that I, I describe American history. And it's, it's not something that you often hear. In my opinion, the real enemy to good government in America has always been nationalism. And if you go back and look at the ratification process, and you go back and, and read the debates surrounding ratification, one of the things that you'll find, if you read them carefully, is that the real reaction to the Constitution was a reaction against nationalism. There was a concern among, I believe, the majority of Americans in 1788 that the Constitution would nationalize too many things. And the, the main, one of the main arguments against the Constitution is, is what would the Constitution do to the states? Would the states still be able to control the internal affairs of their citizens? Would the state courts be ruined? Uh, Would the states be swallowed up in terms of taxation and other things? Would the states still be able to control, say, the uh, penal codes of their particular constituents? Uh, So the states being destroyed was a major concern, swallowed up by nationalism. And if you look at the Democratic Republicans, at the Jeffersonian Republicans, they were not a nationalist outfit as a political faction. They were concerned about the effect of nationalism on what's often called states' rights. And really, the states were just a hedge, a bulwark against nationalism. That was the entire point. And if you go back and look through American history, you'll find that nationalism is the great agitator. Nationalism is the, is the force 
that was driving many people to oppose the central government for a variety of reasons. You can pick out issue after issue after issue, but the, the overarching disease was always nationalism. And this is the case all throughout American history, even to this day. The podcast that I did last week on progressive neo-Confederates, the progressives now are realizing that a right-wing nationalism is a threat to their vision of a left-wing nationalism, and so they're hiding behind now state power. They're looking at Cal Exit. They're looking at nullification. They're looking at things that the right has said they wanted to use to employ to ensure that a left-wing nationalism does not run over them. So see, the real enemy in good government in America has always been nationalism. And the answer to that has always been federalism. Think locally, act locally. But I want to talk about this in terms of modern political rhetoric and where we're going. You see, people think that America has never been more divided. That's not true. Uh, America has been this divided, but divided in a different way. I think that you could make the case that the type of reformist nationalism that we're seeing today is different than any type of nationalism, any type of even reformist nationalism that Americans have witnessed in any other period in American history. There is no commonality among the reformers today and those who are opposed to it. It used to be you could find at least some common ground. Americans, for example, were predominantly Christian in the late 19th century. And I'm going to get into some of these elections in a minute, and people don't realize how close things actually were. But Americans were predominantly Christians. Americans were predominantly dedicated to the principles of uh, free markets, uh, whether they were interested in industrial capitalism or state capitalism. But they were certainly interested in free markets. They were certainly interested in certain American principles that had been there since the founding period. That may not be the case today. I say may not. It is not the case today. You have a faction now, an umbrella party of factions in the Democrat Party that is supremely dedicated to nationalism. They're talking about federalism now because they think that they've lost, and that's the only way they can do anything about it. But they're dedicated to a nationalism that is piecemeal. The overarching goal of all of these progressives, of course, is to institute a reformist nationalist agenda. And that reformist nationalist agenda contains a heavy dose of of either economic or cultural Marxism. Opposing that are Americans who don't believe in those things. I mean, it could be, you could say it's an opposition to political correctness. Uh, it's an opposition to left-wing reform. It's an opposition to tradition. It's an opposition to the attacks on Christianity, whatever it is. But you find that these Americans don't have much in common in terms of the way they view American society. Now, that's not the case in other points of American history. You would find that Americans, North and South, they may have differed on theology and interpretation of theology, but they were generally all Christians. They just didn't believe in the same interpretation of theology. You would find that Americans today, and the majority of Americans are close to it, are not even Christians anymore. So how do you have common ground in that particular way? How do you forge an alliance of people, or how do you have a conversation between people that see the world 
in through different lenses entirely. This is where Think Locally, Act Locally makes sense for everybody, because if that's the case, you're going to run into some very serious and dangerous consequences for that. We just saw that, uh, I mean, the left has been very violent in this entire election process. They've been very violent since they lost the 2016 election. They were violent before that. I've done a podcast, how the left really is the driving force in political violence, violence all throughout history. But now we see that conservatives are reaction to, reacting to that, I mean, allegedly. Uh, we'll see how all this shakes out with the mail bombs that were sent out. So we're seeing uh, violence. We're seeing the potential for very violent actions on the part of the left and the right. Uh, we've seen uh, political rallies turn violent all across the United States. The only way to solve that is to not have nationalism and to not make every issue a national issue, to make politics, which has always been local, local again. You see, if you have a left-wing friend, you're not going to be violent toward that person. Politics at the local, particularly when people know each other, it doesn't mean it's not going to get violent. Sometimes it does, but generally people that know each other, that know each other's family, will show each other a little more respect than not. Now, there are evidence, there's cases, of course, in American history where that's not true. Um, and there's a piece that ran on the Abbeville Institute last week uh, that uh, speaks to this. It's entitled uh, Justice Kavanaugh and the Triumph of Symbol over Reality. And it's written by a friend of mine, John Devaney. He was a graduate student in South Carolina when I was there. And um, he, he points out that there have been some times in American history um, where symbol... Uh, define people's views, this is what he says, quote, symbols define people's views of each other, whether one was opposing the black Republicans or the slave power. Symbols, he said, had defined defined people. Um, And I think in so many ways today, this is exactly what's happened. He, He points out Justice Kavanaugh became one of those symbols. You're either for him or you're against him. And this is very very contentious thing, and it didn't really matter about Justice Kavanaugh's views on anything. It all just became a symbol. Do you support, if you don't support Kavanaugh, you're supporting a symbol, or Kavanaugh became a symbol of all the things that these leftist reformists believe America is. If And then, as a reaction to that, there's a knee-jerk reaction. People are saying, well, I got to support him, even if I don't agree with him. I got to support him because I'm against them. I'm against those people. And so that symbol turns very nasty. Um, and I think that's, that's where this nationalization of everything is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. And why we need to avoid this type of uh, situation in America. But I want to bring a historical perspective into this and talk about how symbol, and not just that, how nationalism created volatile political situations in America. I'm going to start with the 1876 presidential election. Donald Trump lost the popular vote in 2016, and people went berserk about it on the left. The progressives now want to abolish the Electoral College. I've talked about that. And, of course, you have knuckleheads running around the national popular vote, people saying, well, it's not just progressives. It's, it's, also, uh, uh, it's also people on the right that said these things. Uh, look, the Electoral College is there to prevent 
demagoguery. There's a reason that the founding generation wanted the president not to be elected directly by the people, but to be elected by the states. It kept the states in the loop. I've already gone through all of this. So, uh, but there are people that uh, are saying it's it's both sides. But really, it's the progressives who are now pushing the abolition of the Electoral College because they realize that if they didn't have the Electoral College, they would win every election. And essentially, the United States would be governed by California. And not just that, governed by a couple of urban centers in California. Or maybe a handful of urban centers around the United States. I mean, that would be it. Because if you can win those urban centers, then uh, you win the election. So do we really want to be governed by San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles? I mean, this is a question that people should answer. In every state, do you really want to be governed by these, city, by these cities? Uh, particularly when you can't control the electorate. So, uh, in, in terms of our American citizens even voting in elections. I mean, the, the states can control, the states have power over those things. So, do you want a state that allows, say, large numbers of people that aren't American citizens voting in a presidential election? I mean, this is, this is a major question that Americans have to answer. And the Electoral College helps prevent fraud in that particular way. It's not always foolproof because we've seen that it's it's not always worked. And 1876 is a nice example of that. There was voter fraud in 1876. There was voter fraud in other elections that helped. I mean, look, the 1960 election, for example, when John F. Kennedy won, was heavily influenced by voter fraud in two states, Illinois and Texas. Landslide Linden and, and uh, Mayor Daley's dead people in Chicago. But uh, the, the question remains, do we want a situation where Voter fraud can certainly win elections, and there's no bulwark. There's no block against that. The states have always provided that. Um, but, so the, the left, the progressives wants to, want to get rid of it, and people thought, well, this is the only time. Of course, then they would go, well, 2000, 2000 George W. Bush won, uh, really, uh, Al Gore won the popular vote, and Bush gets to be the president. So they're, they're pointing out how these presidents, in their mind, have been illegitimate. But this is not the first time. These are not the first times this has happened. We had it happen twice before that, in the 1870s and 80s. And the result of those of that very contentious period, if you want to look at an election map and, and see razor-thin division between Americans in terms of, you know, you barely had a majority either way. You have to go back to the 1870s and 80s. And that's an interesting time. There was no war. But the difference between that period of time, we had just come out of a war, for example. I mean, that's one reason. There was no war because we had just come out of a war. But the difference between the 1870s and 80s and even into the 90s and today, the 2000s, is that Americans, again, had a lot more in common in the 1870s and 80s than they do today. And, but there was a lot of symbol in the 1870s and 80s. This is a nasty time. So I don't always think that it's going to result in war. Uh, I think what you saw in the 1870s and 80s was people realizing, well, we need to go back to federalism. And for a time, federalism became ascendant because of the reaction to nationalism in the 70s and 80s. And of course, the progressives would say, "Well, yeah, the nationalism became or the, the federalism became ascendant, and then you had all the then you had racism. Then it was racism. So this this is why they they they've always opposed these things. Now they're supporting it because they realize that, that federalism could actually protect minorities. We've gotten to a point in American society in terms of the way we view these issues that's drastically different than it was in the eighteen eighties and nineties. 
And so federalism actually protects these things. If you look at a lot of issues that are on the left, things like uh, uh, racial minorities and how they're represented in government, I, I pointed this out, better represent at the state level. Uh, the left has always had more success in reform movements at the state level than they have anywhere else. They just want to foist all that on everyone else. But I want to get in these elections because, again, razor-thin majorities. And uh, there's a, I was reading a paragraph in a, in a book about the 1876 election. And you could have written this in 2016 when Donald Trump won the election. Uh, there's a lot of parallels between that 76 election and the 2016 election. So I want to read this paragraph. It's very interesting. And just think, could this have been said in 2016? Quote, The thirst for revenge cut across sectional lines, uniting Democrats in a way that they had not been united, they had not been united since the heyday, or I'm sorry, the heady days of Andrew Jackson. Northern Democrats, who had seen their patriotism and loyalty consistently impugned since the Civil War by Republicans, accusations of copperheadism, wanted to strike back at the flag-waving accusers. Small farmers, shopkeepers, and humble working men and women who had seen their life savings swallowed up by the Panic of 1873, wanted to lash out at the physical instruments of their sufferings, the bankers, brokers, and financiers who controlled and exploited the nation's wealth behind a miserly bulwark of high tariffs, high taxes, and hard money. Southern Democrats, who had lost the flower of a generation on Civil War battlefields, and then had returned home to find their state governments dominated by carpetbaggers, scalawags, and former slaves, wanted to reclaim their old way of life. And honest, hard-working Americans on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line, who had endured eight years of unparalleled corruption at the very seat of power, wanted simply to throw the rascals out. Not as a function of political reform, but as an expression of personal disgust. Think about that. And the, the author portrayed this 76 election as an election of revenge. Revenge against all of these things. A bad economy, corruption, political mistreatment. And think about what Republicans were doing in 16 when they went to vote for Donald Trump. That was why Trump was able to surge into office, because of the same type of sentiment. Americans had grown tired on one side of being called all kinds of names, of being demonized for eight years, of seeing their vision of America destroyed by a reformist nationalism, and they wanted revenge. They wanted political revenge. And still to this day, that is a common theme. Among both sides, they want political revenge, but this has turned into more of a personal revenge at times. If you look at the personal attacks against Judge Kavanaugh, these are the attacks now are taking on a personal nature. It's not just about political revenge. It's about personal revenge. But Trump was able to surge into office because he offered a counterweight to all of the things that had gone on. He was opposing reformist nationalism. Trump is a nationalist himself. I mean, that's what he is. He's a different type of nationalist, though. He's not a reformist nationalist. He's not really even a conservative nationalist. He is a, uh, a Whig an old, an old Whig, uh, and, and, uh, and maybe even in a Henry Clay mode of a Whig, uh, though he's much more interested in executive power than I think even Henry Clay would have been. I mean, this is the interesting part. We could get into a whole discussion of, of Clay 
and the Whigs and what they really wanted. Um, but certainly the Whig presidents, I mean, look, I've given Zachary Taylor a lot of credit. I thought that Taylor was uh, very cautious in his implementation of executive power. Um, so the Whig economic program was certainly something that uh, Southerners in particular and Democrats uh, who were not interested in high tariffs and these same things that uh, this this particular passage pointed out. But in terms of the presidents themselves, there's some interesting Whig presidents there that, um, of course, John Tyler is, I think, the best, the greatest president in American history as a Whig. Uh, so that said, there are some other elections, though, in America that were divided like this. 1876, razor thin. Tilden actually wins the popular vote, Samuel Tilden, but Rutherford B. Hayes becomes president out of disputed election returns. Now, what's interesting is, is uh, Michael Holt has actually pointed out that it was, it was not really the three states of the South that swung the election. It was, more, it was Colorado. That the Democrats who had controlled Congress allowed Colorado to be admitted into the Union at a time when those electoral college votes might swing the election, and they did. Um, this is uh, his book, uh, By One Vote, which is an interesting book. And I know a lot of the uh, righteous cause mythologists out there don't like Michael Holt. They think he's, oh, James Oakes is just trash, Michael Holt. He's, he's uh, just taken over. It really hasn't happened. That hasn't happened. Uh, but regardless, um, there are some other elections, though, in American history in the 1880s that I think were so interesting in terms of a razor-thin political majority. The, the one that I think ex- explores this in great detail is the 1880 election. The election following 76, which was so contentious, and there was actually threats of uh, another secession, uh, and you know, Southerners were upset, Democrats were upset, they actually won an election, but yet they didn't win the election. Hayes becomes president, and that was all through what C. Van Woodward called the Compromise of 1876, which really didn't happen. Um, there was no compromise of 1876, but uh, regardless, uh, the fact is that there was a popular vote winner and then an electoral college winner, and there was a lot of heat about this, political heat. And then you get to 1880, and it was the closest election in terms of the popular vote, presidential election in American history. If we're counting the popular vote, the closest election in terms of popular vote in American history, about 3,000 votes separated the two candidates, James Garfield and Winfield Scott Hancock. And people don't realize that, but how close it actually was. And when you look at the election maps of the 1880s, it is, it is divided across the Mason-Dixon almost entirely every single election. It comes right across the South, and you have these very thin majorities in these presidential elections. 1884, a very thin majority elected Grover Cleveland president uh, over James Blaine of Maine. In that election, it was about 50,000 popular votes. 50,000 votes. Popular votes. That had Cleveland winning the election over Blaine of Maine. Of course, Cleveland uh, did a better job in the Electoral College than in the Uh, 76 election, but the Democrats finally win. 1888, Grover Cleveland wins the popular vote by about 100,000 votes, but loses the election to Benjamin Harrison. Again, 100,000 votes, 
100,000 votes. We've gone from about 3,000 to 50,000 to 100,000. 1892, you have Cleveland win the popular vote over Harrison again, but this time by about 400,000 votes. But still, very close. 400,000 votes. 1896, um, now you get about 600,000 votes separating William McKinley and William Jennings Bryan. But you can see these elections are very, very close. Uh, it wasn't until you had, um, or even 1900, uh, it was about a million votes. So you started seeing separation. But in these 1880 elections, when things were still so close, now what were people arguing against each other in the 1880s? Well, I mean, Reconstruction had been put to rest. There was no more issue of Reconstruction. So it was things like tariffs, uh, government spending, the role of government. There were reform movements. You know, it was monetary policy. These are things that we wish on our side that we could just have as the major uh, points of contention. There was no... The social issues had been buried in many ways. Uh, in fact, people thought, as I mentioned the last podcast or last week that uh, progressivism was dead. These social issues had been buried. Yet, uh, the, and the issues that had taken control were economic issues primarily. Today, it's completely different. The social issues are front and center. Uh, we can talk about, I mean, it's things like health care and the role of, uh, you know, uh, what should we do with bathrooms and marriage and, uh, you know, these type of things. That's what people are worried about. In the 1880s, it was about, should we, should we uh, have a hard money policy or should we have free silver? It, I wish we could have these kind of debates. Uh, th that was a much, uh, much more interesting time, I think, in terms of political issues. And, of course, issues that are not emotionally driven, even though uh, people would say that there was emotion behind this 76 election. It was, it was revenge. That's an emotional reaction. And I think you did have that in 76 and 1880 and 1884. People just wanted the Republicans out. They saw them as corrupt. It was an establishment, a reaction to the establishment, a reaction to the bad guys that were there. They wanted these people out and they were going to do anything to do it. So you had this very contentious period. And then you start seeing in the 20th century, the elections are not quite as close any longer. Um, and that's interesting, of course. Um, by the uh, middle of the, the, the early, the teens, you start, you, you add in, uh, of course, women's suffrage, and that's going to double the electorate. So there's a lot of things going on there that make uh, the electorate different. But the issues start to change when we get to the middle of the 20th century. And uh, I think it all changes with Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights. In uh, how that became the, the standard talking points for the Democrat Party. If you've never read that, you need to go out and read it. Because when you read it, you're like, oh yeah, here's, here's 2016's talking points for the Democratic Party. And that reform nationalism became the dominant trend in, on the left. It's reform nationalism. And the reaction to that became a reaction. We don't want these things. And so those talking points, these things are this, this, and this. But Within that, you started seeing Americans drift in their social values as well. Uh, the other day, it's now uh, over 50% of babies are born out of wedlock in America. Over 50%. That's the first time that's ever happened. 
Uh, that's a massive social shift. Whether you agree with it or not, it's a massive social shift in America. People are looking at things differently in America, uh, and there's no common ground. Um, you know, it's just very open. I'm, I'm having babies with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, not my husband or my wife. And we're never going to get married. It's no big deal. We're just not getting married. We're just having babies with each other, but we're not married. Uh, that is a massive social shift in the way that people view relationships um, and how acceptable certain things have become in modern popular culture that were not acceptable just even 30 years ago, 30 to 40 years ago. Not even close to acceptable. Uh, but they're acceptable now in terms of social relations, interpersonal relationships, um, things of that nature. The way, the, the way that we view gender roles and, and, and uh in society. So we've had a massive social shift. We can talk about whether these things are good or bad, but it's just a fact. There's been a massive social shift. So Americans, this reform nationalism is out of step with those that are opposed to these things. They say these things are just crazy. We don't like this stuff. So how do you have common ground? The common ground you have to have is think locally, act locally. You can have your progressive utopia in your state. And we'll have our conservative utopia in ours. <laughs> That's the common ground. Federalism has to be the common ground. And what you saw in these razor-thin elections in the 70s and 80s, eventually that became the key. Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about economic policy. We're going to let all the social issues go to the states where it really belongs anyways. We're gonna now, it didn't mean the court system wasn't working behind the scenes to do some of these things. It was. But... Uh, all these other things are going to become state issues. We're just not going to talk about that stuff any longer. We'll let, we'll let the states sort out all these problems, and the general government will be for general concerns, commerce and defense. We'll talk about monetary policy. We'll talk about taxes. We'll talk about imperialism. We'll talk about these things. We'll talk about foreign policy, because in reality, that's all the general government is there to do anyways. Now, of course, Cleveland was interested in beating back waste as president, using the veto power correctly and knocking down these fraudulent pension uh, bills that were coming through. But that's a whole other issue. I think the thing is that the symbols have become so dominant in America. This is reform nationalism and a counterweight to reform nationalism dominating the political agenda. And it's become very nasty. The only way to solve that, the only way to solve that is to have federalism be the common ground. That can be the common ground as a protection for your worldview, whether it's conservative, traditional, reformist, uh, whatever it is. It's a, it offers a hedge for your worldview and what you think society should be. And the states that want reform can have it, and the states that don't want reform don't have to have it. And that could be, you know, live and let live. That is the key to solving this nastiness that's become so violent now uh, in American politics. And I think that the history shows us the way. The 1870s and 80s, as these issues were buried in the states, that became... And people would say, well, that's terrible. We don't like that because those issues being buried in the states led to all kinds of... Be but we didn't have a big war, again, which could have happened. Uh, so... We have to accept the fact that Americans don't see the things the same way, that there are conservatives, there are reformists, progressives, and uh, progressives don't need to control what conservatives do, and conservatives don't need to control what progressives do, and I think that's the key. 
I'll see you next time on The Brian McClain.